The first is I've been asked to speak about this evening. Um, we've been going through, as a church, we've been going through the book of Luke. Um, we're up to chapter 12, and I'm doing um, a big section, but don't worry. I, I won't talk for long. And remember, my time hasn't started yet. Um, so it's verses 22 to 59. So I'm going to invite my wife, Vicky, so that you're not listening to my voice too much, to read the first section. It's 38 verses, so I'm not going to hit you with it all at once. We're going to do it in three chunks. So it's going to be like three mini talks. So, Vicky, can you read the first section, please? Yeah, first I'm going to share really cool glitter bugs this morning. The threes and four-year-olds had a fire tunnel. <laughs> Tim Smith organized that, and, um, yeah, they had a great time being touched by God as well. Okay, so Luke 12, 22 to 34, do not worry. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable to you And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Vicky. So, do not worry. So, these verses start, uh, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Okay, what you will eat, what you will wear. And uh, a very good preacher said to me once, Whenever there is a therefore... You need to look at what it is there for, okay? Because it's referring to something that's happened before. So what happened before, which Mike Vaughn very ably preached about, because I listened to his talk, um, it talks about the, the rich... Do you remember the story of the rich farmer who grows loads of food and realizes his barns are going to be full? So he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns. I'll put my food in. I'll take it easy. And God says to him that night, you fool, because tonight I'm going to take your life. And who's going to have all these good things you stored up for yourself? So that story's been told. And Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or your clothes, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. And then he goes on to tell us about God looks after the birds and you're worth so much more than the birds. You know, and he looks after the grass, for goodness sake. You're you're worth more than the grass. So he tells them not to worry about it. Jesus was saying in the story of the rich fool that 
you mustn't, you know, store all your riches in barns and, and think of money as your riches but not be, and not be rich towards God. He says the most important thing is not the riches you have on earth. It's basically how rich your relationship with God is. That's true riches. That's true treasure. So he's saying these things, the food you eat, the clothes you wear, are by far not the most important things. So don't worry about them. Um, now, here's an important proviso I want to put on this. In, in our culture, and I don't know if you've come across this, but when we say, oh, don't worry about it, uh, and we'll be interactive here, what do we usually mean? We, mean? we kind of mean, actually, don't do anything about it, don't we, usually? We, we're say, you know, if someone says, oh, I'm a bit concerned because I haven't filled up the car, they say, oh, don't, don't worry about it. And they mean, oh, you'll be fine, you don't need to fill up the car, it's okay. I don't actually believe that in this context that what Jesus is saying. Because we all need to eat and we all need to wear clothes. Don't we? Or have I been getting this wrong? (laughs) Um, We all need to eat and we all need to wear clothes. And most of us need to go out to work in order to earn the money to eat food. Okay, So I don't believe Jesus was saying, oh, don't worry about food. You don't need that. He's, He's not saying that. He's saying, he's not saying don't do anything about it. He's saying don't worry about it. Because worrying about it isn't going to do you any good. You do need to do something to get food. The food in my house doesn't jump out of the cupboards into the saucepans and get cooked. Let's, let's not go there about who does most of the cooking of it. Okay, but it doesn't happen on its own. And then Jesus says, I I do some of the cooking. Okay, so he then says, and I love these verses, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Jesus is saying, worry does not do you any good at all. Now, I want to I tell you a, a bit about my background. Um, my dad's German, my wife, my mum is English, and my wife is English as well. Um, and my mum's my family were a family of warriors. They just worried all the time. And um, my mum's got a lot better, um, but in the home I grew up in, and you raise your hands if this is true for you, if you worried about people, that was really one of the main signs that you loved them. The fact that you worried constantly about them, that was one of the main signs of your love for them. Okay? I want to tell you something. That's a lie. Worrying about people is not the best proof that you love them. Worrying about people is not proof of love. Because Jesus commands us not to worry. I know that's a strong word, but he says, don't do this thing. And the Bible actually teaches us a lot more about worry. Um, And 
Actually, could I have my next slide up, please? Slide two. Because um, there's actually a verse which really jumped off the page. Psalm 37, verse 8, actually says, Do not fret. It leads only to evil. So not only will worry not do you good, not only will it not help you. The Bible actually teaches us, if you worry, it will lead to evil. You will, you will do bad things to yourself and you will do bad things to other people. You know, we're doing this Frozen sing-along and one of the, one of the Disney songs in it, um, Laura makes an excellent troll, by the way. One of the songs in it is, it says, people make bad choices when they're mad or scared or stressed. And it's true. You don't, <laughs> she can't stop herself. Throw a little love their way. Um, when, when people are stressed, when people are worried, when we are worried, we make our worst decisions. We make our worst decisions when we're worried. And Jesus and the Bible throughout teaches us that if we, if we worry, it's going to harm us and it's going to cause us to harm others. And I want to talk to you about my journey with worry. Having, having grown up in this home where worry was effectively seen as a positive thing and, in, and encouraged almost, um, my mum wouldn't do that now, but that was, and, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't written down anywhere, but it was just the culture that we grew up in. And I think it's quite a British thing. Um, I, I came to the point where I, I didn't have a breakdown, but I, I just, I was sick. I was up to here with it, like this, this enough. And, and I got to the point where the way I had to deal with it was, if I sensed something rearing up and something coming along that, that I was getting anxiety about, I literally had to shoot it in the head. That was, that was my reaction. It was like, no mercy that thing has to go, gun out, boom. And sometimes I literally would physically do this, you know, so not with a gun, you know. But I would make a gesture to show that I was... And that really helped me for a while. That was part of my journey of overcoming worry, just seeing it in its many forms and like, you're, you're dead. You're, you're doing me no good whatsoever. I'm going to get my mind off you and onto something else. And that was helping me. That was, that was good. And then I had a conversation with Martin Steele. Martin, who was playing guitar up here this morning. He's usually drunk when he's playing the guitar up here. And he, I was telling him my story about now when worries come up, I just shoot them in the head. And usually I got like a positive reaction to this story. And then he, he just looked at me and he said, sounds like that takes up a lot of energy. And I thought, yeah, he's right. I have to think quite a lot about that. And I'm... You know, using my, and he said to me, I really think you need to come to the point where you believe that God wants you to have peace and that that's how he wants you to live and he wants it to stay like that and for you to not always have to shoot things in the head. And I, and I just knew, I knew that the, my days of shooting things in the head were numbered from then on. But I, now if I'm honest, for a, for a few weeks, I, I still had to keep doing it because that was what was working then. But I did come to a point after a few months where I thought, actually, I don't have to do this all the time. When, when I see those things, and you see, worry comes in so many forms. Let me tell you one of the main ways it comes for me is I go to bed and I start thinking about all the stuff I have to do. 
and suddenly, oh, I have to do this. Oh, I now, one of my strategies, which is not necessarily Vicky's favourite, is I, I just I write them down. I write a note, which is she loves when I turn the light on, write a note, and then turn the light back off. We have to get some better lamps with soft lights that she doesn't wake up. Um, but so I, you know, I'll, I'll do that. But but the thing is, what what worry does is it comes in disguises, and it says to you, oh, you're what you're doing is you're, you're thinking through this problem and you're being conscientious and you're working hard. So you're, you're thinking through this thing so that you can find it. It's a lie. Well, who's, who goes to bed and thinks, oh yeah, now, now that I'm supposed to be, this is the best time for me to think through <laughs> the solution to this problem. I found myself like doing mathematical calculations in the, and you're in laying there thinking, what has possessed me to think that now is the time to work out that mortgage? Or, you know, it's just... And, but that's what worry does. It doesn't... It's like, you know, thieves and robbers don't wear stripy shirts and have a swag bag. You know, worry doesn't come up and say, I'm worry. It fools you into thinking that you're being good. And that's... Just brothers and sisters, this worry lies to you and tells you you're being conscientious, you're being prepared, you're serving God in what you're doing. And actually, you're being deceived. Because, you know, one, one, a great, I heard a thing from a guy called Seth who leads the children's work in Bethel. He said, if you're fearful about being deceived, you're already deceived. Because fear is a deception. Because that's not how God works. He doesn't get you to do stuff by making you worry about it. He gets you to do stuff by filling you with faith and joy and peace about it. That's how he operates. So do not worry. So, so what is the answer? Because, you know, there's a, a piece of scripture where it says, you know, you have, who have been thieves must thieve no longer, but do something constructive with your hands. And I really believe that's a spiritual principle that applies across all of life. And so Jesus follows that principle here, and he says to us, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. So that's talking about the food and the clothes. So what does it mean to seek his kingdom? Well, if you're seeking the kingdom, then essentially you're seeking the king. You're seeking to know him, to know him better. And if you're seeking him, then you're seeking love. You're seeking joy. You're seeking peace. You're seeking righteousness, kindness, goodness. So Jesus is saying, don't fill your head with worry. Don't think, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to live? Don't think that way. Think, how am I going to love? Who am I going to love? How, you know, spend time in the love that God has for you. They're all, seeking the kingdom is so massive. I can't go over it all. But it's seeking these good things, seeking the one who is the king. To make sure that your riches are not the ones that are stored in barns or in bank accounts or in property or in anything else, but that your riches are in heaven where they will last forever. So, to summarize, if I could have my next slide, the first section, do not worry, seek the kingdom. Do not worry, seek the kingdom. Okay, Vicky, could we have the second set of reading? Thank you. Okay, so this is 35 to 48. 
Okay, this is proof you need to keep your clothes on. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master's taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he's not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Thank you. So we do have to be dressed, as he said. So we can see clearly from this passage that do not worry doesn't mean don't do anything. Okay? And there's a difference, because when we say don't worry, we often, oh, don't worry, you don't have to do anything about that. But Jesus is not saying that. He's specifically saying don't worry about these things. Do something about them, positive. But don't do this worrying thing because that's rubbish and that's going to hurt you and that's going to cause you to hurt other people. So he then goes on and he gives two examples of servants and how it will be good for those servants who he finds doing their job well when he returns. And it will be bad if he comes home and finds that they're not doing their job. Now, we've taught a lot in recent years in this church um, about being a servant, and more specifically, uh, what Jesus said. Could I have the next slide, please, which is John um, 15, 15. So Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. There is no doubt that we are called to serve God and therefore we're called to serve the kingdom of God but the way that we think about that the way that we view that the lens through which we view that is important and matters there's a progression in the New Testament of our understanding of who we are in God and we see it in the life of the disciples at the beginning when the disciples first start following Jesus, they think of themselves as his servants, his disciples and his servants. They serve him. And then Jesus sits them down and says, look, I no longer call you servants. I now call you 
friends. And then as we go further through the New Testament, they then come to an understanding that they're not only his friends, they're actually sons and daughters of the king because he's the son of God. And he tells them that they're his brothers and sisters and their understanding by the Holy Spirit grows so that they understand that each believer is a son or a daughter of the king. So this journey is magnificent. It's from servant to friend to son and daughter and co-heir with Christ. So Christ is the heir of the kingdom of all creation and we are co-heirs with him. That's who we are. That's pretty good. It's, it's, you know, it's relatively significant that we are co-heirs with Christ. That's who we are. So, and, and actually, if you have eyes to see, there are clues in this passage, which is about servants, about who we are. Because he talks about the ones who the master comes back and finds them still serving. It says he'll sit them down at the table and he'll serve them. That didn't happen. But this master does it. And then it says, and he'll put, him in, put them in charge of all his possessions. And what does Jesus promise that he's going to do with us? That he has done with us. That that was from the beginning when he made the very first human beings. He made them king and queen of creation. And the mandate never changed. Our job never changed. We're the kings and queens of creation. That's what he made us to do from the beginning to the end. So the passage is talking about how we need to be serving God and serving his kingdom until he returns. Because the fact that we're sons and daughters doesn't mean that we don't have to serve. In fact, quite the opposite. Because you're a son and daughter, you want to serve more. I, I love my mum and dad. I, we've booked a holiday to go down to Devon to spend Christmas with them because we love them. Not to have some sense of duty, but because it will be fun. And there'll be a swimming pool and everything, and it will be great, okay? And I, I want to do that because I love them. And there's a verse here which, which I really love, where it says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Could I have my next slide, please, Val? I love the way that it says it here. This is from the contemporary English version. Um, actually, I think... If we could have the next one after that as well. I love this. If God has been generous with you, he will expect you to serve him well. But if he has been more than generous, I think making us co-heirs and giving us the universe is quite generous. Okay? If he's been more than generous, he will expect you to serve him even better. And when I was asked to do this talk... Uh, nobody would have known, I don't think, that we actually have this picture up in my house. Now, what's quite funny, and I've known this for a few years, is that my reference here is wrong, but I quite like it. I don't know why. It says Luke 14. It should say 12. But it's a picture of me and Vicky and the children when they were considerably younger, so they won't thank you, but they're not here. So have a good look and come up and see it afterwards. That's Hannah and Joseph. But, you know, God has given us so much. He has blessed us so much, and we know that because of that, it's, we love him. We love him because of who he is, but we also love what he's done and what he's given us, and we want to serve him because of that. And, you know, a very, very brief story. 
when Vic and I used to lead a church, just before we did it, we had uh, these American people asked us to do loads of psychometric testing. And uh, one of them was about our marriage. And so they did all these tests, and they said, oh, this one came out like this. And I said, oh, well, the marriage one, we had to disregard that because that came out skewed. Bing. Hold on. What do you mean? That came, and they said, oh, the results were too positive, so they just discounted it. <laughs> I thought, okay. So we went over to California, and I had a meeting with the guy who administered these tests. And I said, look, can... And I said, can I just talk to you a minute? I said, look, I've been here for a week or so now. I was, I was in California. Pretty much every Christian I met, and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not having a go at anybody. Um, but most of the Christians I met were on their second or third marriage. Um, and that was in the church. Um, and I said to him, look, my mum and dad are still together. And they love each other. And I was brought up in a loving home and... They, uh, they're doing all right financially, and we have a great relationship with them. My wife's mom and dad, and sadly, because dad's now passed away, but this was several years ago, they're still alive. They still love each other. They brought Vicky up in a loving home. They're still together now, and we have a great relationship with them. We're blessed. God's given us, you know, financial blessing, and, we're, and, and we love each other, and it really is that good. And uh, he, just, he just put his pen down, and he just said, You're blessed. You know, and the thing is, God has given me so much. How can I not give it away? How can I not love other people, help them to have good marriages, help them to bring up their children, help them to teach their children about Jesus? Because God has given me so much to give away. And I want to invite you, look at yourself, look at your life, and think, what has God given me that I can just pour out and give away? Because when the people are downstairs serving, I, I don't want them to memorize the curriculum. And I, you know, I want them to read it, preferably, you know, before they go down. But what I want to do, and we discussed this this morning, is for them to be so full of the Holy Spirit and the goodness of God that it just slops over onto the kids. That's what I want to happen. That's, that's our dream as a team. And that, and that is what's happening. That's why Sasha went downstairs and six children got healed. Because he's just so good. So he expects us to be ready to be serving him. And I just want to finish this bit with a challenge and then go on to the final section. Something that I really think is just something that I need to bring is, is a question. And the question is this. We're all called to serve him. But do you serve him sacrificially? Do you serve him? Do we serve him? so that it actually costs us something. You know, there's a famous story in the Bible when, you know, David was king. I don't know if you've ever been to Winston Churchill's house. I find this really funny in life. Winston Churchill was in the wilderness for like years and years, decades. Nobody liked him. And then he won the war and people just showered gifts on him. And I kind of think it's brilliant. It's amazing. One of the best Britons ever. But like he's won the war and everybody knows that he loves him. But once, once you're popular, people just want to shower gifts on you, don't they? Even though you don't need them anymore, they just want to give you more and more and more. He could have probably done with some of that when he was in the wilderness. But the question, do, do we give sacrificially? Do we give in a way that costs us? David was king and, you know, he said, I want to make a sacrifice. And the guy says, oh, you can, you can have the cattle, you can have a... And David says, I can't do that. Because I'm giving God a gift that has, that has cost me nothing. Okay? 
what we give to God, it, it's great to give to God out of our surplus, out of, you know, when God's given us so much that we give. But, but what are we doing where we're actually making a sacrifice? We're actually saying, this thing that I could just use for myself, like the guy who was just going to build the bigger barns. The problem with that guy wasn't that he was building bigger barns. It was, what shall I do? I know I'll make bigger barns and I'll put my grain in it and I'll have an easy life. The problem wasn't that he had lots of grain. God gave Solomon loads. The problem was his heart, that he didn't want to give sacrificially to God. And I just want to leave you with that question. How are you serving God in a way that's sacrificial? Because as his children, we're called to serve him with everything. So summary of this section, if I could have the next slide, is... Be ready to serve the kingdom. What does that look like practically? It can look like serving in the children's ministry, for example. I'm a little bit biased towards that. But if you would like to serve in the children's ministry, please come and talk to me or talk to Vicky, and, and we, can, we can talk to you about that. It can mean serving on the food bank, like Claire Nordali does. It can mean doing the car parking in the winter, in the cold. That's pretty sacrificial. It can mean doing the youth ministry. That's extremely sacrificial. It can <laughs> I know I have two teenagers. Um, but they have a fantastic time in the youth ministry, and the youth ministry have a fantastic time as well, the leaders. Um, Vicky, can I ask you to read the final section, please? So this is 49 to 59. I have come to bring fire to the earth. This is Jesus, not me. Well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint am I under until it's completed? Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there'll be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. Thank you. So there's a, there's a tremendous paradox in this passage. Um, because Jesus actually says here, Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Now, I'd wager, although obviously I'm not a gambling man, but if I were, I would say, you know, do you think Jesus came to bring peace? And I suspect that most of us would say, yes. Okay, I think, I'd guess. But he says, do you think I came to bring peace? No, I tell you, but division. So, so here's, uh, here's part of this paradox. If I could have the next slide up, please. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. It's one of his titles, is the Prince of Peace. And yet he says, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring division. And when Jesus actually came, 
It says that they sang glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Let me ask you a question about this verse. Are the angels declaring peace to everyone? No. Who are they declaring peace to? In just, just the actual words. It's not a trick question. So the saints, which is true, it says, but peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. Okay? So it says peace will come to those on whom his favor rests. So, who does his favor rest on? Me, whoever said me, correct. Okay, if I could have the next slide, please. It says in John 1, verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. His favor rests on those who choose to receive him. And those who choose to receive him become his children, like we were talking about earlier. When Jesus came, when he was conceived, when he was born, when he came to the earth, he brought the kingdom of heaven with him. That's what he did. Let me ask you a question. Does everyone accept that? No. Everybody doesn't accept it. So you have families that are divided because, you know, one, one, person, one person accepts it. When I, was, I became a Christian when I was a teenager, I was 15, my parents were scared. They thought I had joined a cult, okay? We, they, would have, they liked having dinner parties. They would have the dinner parties. And I would tell the people who came to their dinner parties that they needed to become Christians or they were going to go to hell. And my parents didn't like it when I did that. And my parents used to want to go and visit family on a Sunday. And I would say, I don't want to go and visit the family on a Sunday because I want to go to church. Uh, I would probably play things slightly differently now. okay? But that was what I believed then. That was what I did then. Um, so at first, my family didn't like my faith. I was a really, I was a really, really good kid. I didn't do drugs and blah, blah. I was a good kid. The arguments started when I became a Christian. <laughs> and that's not a joke. We used to start rowing after I became a Christian. Because they didn't, now, I just want to tell you, they're now gloriously saved. And they love Jesus. And they've both had cancer this year. And they've both... God's just healing them and through medicine and through prayer, and they're both doing great. Okay, but they love Jesus, they love each other, and it's a fantastic story. My brother loves Jesus, and his wife loves Jesus, and his kids love it's just fantastic. But they didn't accept it at first. And there are some family members that are never going to accept it. In my family and, and in some of yours, it divides families. But I want to ask you a question. When Jesus came to the when Jesus first started preaching, now, we, we talk about, you know, preaching the gospel. Have you ever thought about when Jesus preached the gospel, he couldn't actually tell them that the gospel was that he died and risen again, could he? Because he hadn't, okay? He did often preach about the fact that that was going to happen. But who can tell me, when he first, what does the Bible say was the first thing he preached? When he went around and started speaking, what was the first words that he said? The kingdom of heaven 
is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can we have the next slide, please? The first thing, he says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The fact that Jesus came, and therefore the kingdom of heaven came, it required a response. Human beings, humanity had to respond. They responded by nailing him to a cross eventually and destroying his body, not understanding that actually they couldn't destroy him. And that three days later he was going to be raised from the dead and that his death was going to pay for all our sin. But it divides. When Jesus came, it divided. It divided family against family. And it still does. Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of power. And it scares people. And they don't like it because... because Everything, I've had people that I've offered to pray for who have had diabetes or, or, and, and they don't want to be prayed for. They don't, sometimes people don't want to get better because if they get better, they have to admit that the world is fundamentally different to what they thought it was. How frightening is it to think that it's not just all the laws of physics and that there's actually a person who's in control. It's quite a scary thought if you don't know who that person is and that they're good, isn't it? Imagine if I said, Laura, by the way, there's someone else in control of your life right now. Could kill you at any moment. And she didn't know that person, okay? That would be scary. It is the case, but it's not going to kill you. Okay, right. So it needs to change the way we think. And when he came, the kingdom of God come, came. And it goes on to say about interpreting the times. Jesus understood the times in which he lived. And he understood what he needed to do. He said, I've got this thing I have to do and how heavily it weighs on me and, until it is done. He's talking about his crucifixion. And he's saying that he understands his times. And he he says to them, you fools, you know, you look at the sky, you look at the sun, you understand the weather, but you don't understand the times that you're in. And what I want to pull out of that for us tonight is that Jesus understood the time that he lived in. He understood that he needed to take on the sin of the world, that he needed to pay the price so that we could be set free. We need to understand that the time in which we live is where the kingdom of heaven has come and stayed and is still here and that all the things that Jesus did because he paid the price for our sin and if you don't know him, please come and see us and we can change that tonight, okay? And if you need healing, please come and see us and we'll pray for you and and believe that God's going to heal you tonight. But Jesus changed everything. And the times in which we live now are where we've been set free from sin, where healing is available, miracles are available, signs and wonders are available. They are the times in which we live. And that's the times that the children were living in downstairs this morning. So I'm going to finish and say, in summary to what I've said this evening, if I can have my final slide, do not worry. Not only is it pointless, not only is it not going to do you any good or us any good, it is going to harm you if you choose to do it. So the way that you have to change that is to take your mind off the worry and to take your mind onto the kingdom, onto love and faith and joy and say, God, how do you want me to employ those to change those situations that I have been anxious about, but I know that anxiety is not going to change them. Your love, your faith, your joy, your peace is what's going to change them 
through me. Secondly, we need to be ready. The fact that we're sons and daughters of the king doesn't mean that we don't serve him. The complete opposite. It means that we serve him better. Because if he's been more than generous to you, you, you serve him out of the overflow of what is given to you. And finally, we need to understand the times in which we live. We need to understand that he's come, that he's paid for all of our sin, if only we accept it, that we don't need to worry or fear, that we need to be full of faith in him because he wants to heal and set free and deliver and give provision and do all kinds of miracles because he said that if we believed in him, whoever believed in him would do the things that he had been doing. In fact, they would do greater things. Amen. Thank you.